Last time on this podcast, you've gone and put the finance team next to the marketing team. Marketers are usually the extroverts, they're loud, they're noisy, they're collaborating, they're brainstorming. And then you've got the finance team who are very much the introverts who are sitting there trying to concentrate, crunch numbers, do data analytics. And you're sticking the two of them side by side, you are going to create conflict. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism. I'm Adelaine Ung, and this is part two of my interview with Melissa Marston, one of Australia's leading workplace strategists who's launched a new book called The Next Workplace. If you missed part one, Mel shared some little-known secrets about the relationship between workplace design and your productivity, and why it might not be the best idea for the marketing team to sit next to the accounting team. I must admit, I never thought about why that wouldn't work. But in this second part of our interview, we look at hybrid work arrangements, where Mel introduces us to the idea that there are five levels of remote work, and one of them might suit your workplace better than another. Also, I ask her about the little twist she's put on the phrase, work-life balance. Here's part two. I thought what was also interesting that in your book, you outlined five levels of autonomy that companies can sort of operate in, because if we're all in a state of flux and some of us are doing hybrid, we're thinking, yeah, we're doing the modern thing. But there are so many ways to go about this. And there are ways to imagine our space in an even more exciting or next level ways. Can you take us through what's possible? So those five levels of autonomy are actually from a guy called Matt Mullenweg, and he is the founder of Automatic, which are the guys that make WordPress, the website platform. So he has outlined those five levels and the top level, level five is Nirvana. And in Nirvana, basically there is no office. Everyone chooses where they work, how they work, and everything is a hundred percent remote. Now, Nirvana is actually something that is very difficult for many organizations to achieve. And it works well in those tech companies because you really aren't tied to anything physical because of the nature of work. The work you do is in the virtual realm. So everything can be virtual. The thing that needs to be pointed out with the way that those organizations have achieved that is that they started that way. They recruit that way. They onboard that way. They manage that way. You know, it's inherent in their DNA as an organization, how they actually operate is 100% virtual. So when they go through their recruitment phase, they actually text people. And so you're being judged on your ability to communicate via text. You know, your, your written communication skills are being assessed during the recruitment phase. So they've got all of these little different measures that happen throughout the process of actually coming on board. And the other thing is you wouldn't choose to apply to work in that organization unless you were 100% comfortable with working 100% remotely. Because, you know, and this is the other thing with many organizations, we still like that team connectivity. We still like that face-to-face interaction action. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, which is level one, is all of our frontline workers. So those people who cannot work remotely. So the guy that, you know, or the gal that makes you your coffee, your barista, they can't make your coffee from home. You know, the postie, he can't deliver the boxes from home. All of these people have a need to be physically present to deliver their job. And so then the layers that sort of sit in between are, you know, how do we get from where we kind of were 
in our offices, which is kind of level two. And then we get to level three, which is basically we just recreated the office online, which is what pretty much most companies did during the pandemic. And then we get to level four, which is where some, and I would say a lot of organizations are trying to aim for now, which is this true modern flexibility, this true hybrid environment where we're trying to really enable our organizations to be able to work physically in one place, but also virtually in another place and that connectivity of the two. And that's where we start to see a lot of asynchronous working. So where, you know, the role that I do doesn't rely on me being in the same space as you or, you know, on Teams calls with you to be able to deliver that piece of work. It's like I need to do my piece of work independently and then I can pass it on to you. So it doesn't really impact you as to when I give it to you. So therefore, core office hours and things become a little bit more redundant. Again, that's determined by the nature and style of the work that you do. So this is where we're starting to look at what does flexibility look like around our service delivery and what do our customers actually want? And then how do we then create a business model that sits behind that to then create a work environment that supports that again? So there's a lot of complexity in this and there's a lot of layers, but it's good that organizations start thinking about it. And it's an important thing to do, which not many of us do just because we arrive at work and we start on the go you know, grab a quick cup of coffee or tea and then computers are switched on and we immediately go into mode and nobody actually stops to think about the way that we're working and how can we do this better and actually not only increase our productivity, but be happier working as well. So it's really interesting. Wellness is your other sort of pet topic. And I mentioned trying to achieve work-life balance, which is sort of in the same theme. I, I love the cheeky subtitle in your book, A Fruit Box is Not Wellness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm like, that begs explanation because that's what a lot of companies do. Here's a fruit box. You know, yes, we're taking yeah. we're looking after Tick. wellness in our company. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, explain what wellness is supposed to look like in a thriving company. Wellness takes on a lot of different factors and I look at it from, um, you know, physical well-being, mental well-being and emotional well-being. They're the three factors that I explore in the book and that comes down to a, a number of different ways to approach this. So an organisation firstly needs to have a genuine interest in the well-being of their people. And that comes down to everything from work design to the environment that they're providing through to the physical and, you know, physical well-being and support that they're giving their people to the actual construction of the space itself. And so we kind of cover off all of those different aspects in the book. And it's really about understanding what do we care about as an organization? How are we going to physically support the the well-being of our people? What does our well-being strategy look like? How does that strategy then actually show up in the physical construction of the space? So from a, a mental and an emotional perspective, are we giving people spaces for that respite? Are we giving them those lounges, those quiet spaces where they, you know, if they've had a tough conversation with somebody that they've got somewhere they can go and just gather themselves without having to go and, you know, hide in the bathrooms, you know, are we supporting mothers returning to the workplace with parents' rooms and somewhere that they can go and express in a comfortable space? Again, not having to do that in the toilets. All of those sorts of things all contribute to the mental and emotional well-being of our people. So the, that's one aspect. And then the flip side of that, though, is the actual physical construction of the space. What are we doing to introduce good air quality? Have we got plants in there from a biophilic perspective? How are we thinking about movement and nourishment of our people in terms of the location and choice of our, our workplace? Are we 
looking at somewhere that's got easy access to good and healthy food options? Have we considered somewhere that's got great uh, public transport or, you know, ability for people to cycle to work and then have a shower and store their bike safely? So all of those things kind of fall into that wellness bucket. And I refer to the well-building standard in the in the book as well, because I think their concepts around how we can manage and design healthy well buildings for our people takes it well beyond just designing a green building or, you know, a sustainable building. And it looks about the sustainability of our people within that space as well. And so there's a a number of different metrics in there that start to quantify the financial uplift even on how creating a very healthy building and a healthy workplace can have a direct impact on the health and well-being of your people and also then the financial performance of the business. Yeah, and even if you can't do everything that Melissa just said, um, you can start with those plants. I mean, when you when you say biophilic plants, though, what what does that mean? So biophilia is our natural affinity with nature and the environment. And so the idea of that is that we create that by bringing it in. So if you have the opportunity to go hiking or get out in nature, there is a a biochemical reaction that happens in our body. Our stress decreases, you know, our cortisol decreases. We have this natural calming sensation and it helps our body get out of that fight and flight mode. By bringing some of that into the workplace, we can't create the same level of experience, but we can start to create some impact on people because when we see greenery, it starts to trigger those same chemical reactions in our body. There's even essential oils that you can burn in your office that give off those same essence as what eucalypts do that can start to then trigger those cortisol changes in your body as a result of your senses picking those things up. So there are just little things that we can do to start to bring that natural environment back into what has become a very hard, constructed, man-made environment to really connect us back to our natural surroundings. You know, we weren't made to be living in concrete boxes. We were made to be living in nature. And the event industry would argue that we were not made to be remote all the time. We were aghast, you know, when there were a lot of people beginning to say that, hey, maybe this is the new normal that everybody just gets used to staying at home and working from home. There's no need to meet for business meetings anymore. But I think you've done some research or you know something about the importance of actually meeting face-to-face. There are some other sort of biochemical reactions or something or other. What do you know about that? So there's actually a neuroscientist called Dr. Fiona Kerr, and she's from Adelaide. And she talks about the fact that when we have face-to-face interactions, there's a chemical reaction that happens in our body because when our eyes meet, we have a retinal eye lock. And when that retinal eye lock happens is a chemical reaction happens in our brain and then new neural pathways are formed. Now, those neural pathways and that retinal eye lock can't happen over screens because we're never technically actually looking at each other because of the way the cameras all sit. But it happens when we meet face to face. And this is where we start to create social bonds. This is how we build those relationships. And so once that bond has initially been made by that retinal eye lock, when I then pick up the phone to you or I meet you over a technology call, you know, like teams or something like that, my body recalls that. And so then it then strengthens that chemical reaction and it strengthens that neural pathway. And this is how we end up with those social bonds and those social connections. The other thing that's happened too is there's a guy called Matthew Lieberman and he is a behavioral scientist and he's done studies that found that when we are excluded, when we don't feel like we belong, we actually feel physical pain. So our bodies can't determine the difference between a real threat 
and an imagined threat. So the fact that I feel like you don't like me or I don't feel like I fit in or I don't feel like I belong will actually cause me physical pain. And so with our social isolation, we've actually exacerbated that feeling because we feel like we've been, we don't, we don't belong anymore. We've been outcast from our tribe, from our people. And therefore that chemical reaction is happening in our body where we're starting to feel that physical pain. Wow. Where, where does that physical pain show up? Do you know? Neurotransmitters, I'm pretty sure, but I couldn't be hundred percent sure. I'd, I'd have to check that one for you. That is fascinating though. We were talking about wellness. Let me ask about your work-life balance. It's probably a little bit not as useful if I just ask for, you know, what are the benchmarks for work-life balance? Because that means so many different things and it means different things to different people. So what about you, Mel? Do you feel like you've achieved work-life balance? What does that look like? What are the things that you would never say yes to? What does that look like in your world? Uh, it's something that's constantly shifting and evolving. So I have a 10 month old baby. So work-life balance is something that's also, you know, life in general is interesting. So the way that I approach this is I tend to start by looking at, well, what do I actually want to achieve here? And I don't think work-life balance is realistic. I think I've redetermined it as work-life integration. And it's just about trying to find what is going to work for me and it changes by season because you know when it's colder and the days are shorter and you know the mornings are darker I tend to get up a bit later Um, and then vice versa when summer comes you know things are a bit more energetic as well so I think being conscious of the seasons and cycles around us is very important to trying to to blend in with that. I try and use my natural energy and those ebbs and flows to try and maximize my productivity, you know, rest when you're tired and then when you're feeling energized work. So I think that's really important. But what I also do is I do uh, like an ideal week. So I have a map out of, you know, what I want to be achieving through the week. So I have regular days for exercise. I've got everything time blocked in there. Where do I need to be? What do I need to be doing? I tend not to start work before 10 o'clock in the morning because I don't like the pressure of trying to get all the kids out the door, getting myself dressed and getting anywhere, you know, within traffic and everything else. That's not always possible. This is why it's called an ideal week. But if that's my benchmark, then I can by exception choose to shift that around as needed. But that's kind of how I start it. And then the thing that works really well for me is, again, flexibility, because sometimes I need to be able to go and pick up the kids or there's something going on at the school that I want to be part of, or I want to go and catch up with my friends, or I want to do something else. Having the ability to do that, but then be able to jump back and do whatever other work I need to do at another point in time, that that tends to work really well for me. So I think not being too rigid with what you know, I only work between nine and five. That definitely doesn't fit in my my vocabulary at all. I might stop work at two, you know, go and hang out with the kids. Then we have, you know, bath, dinner, bed, all of the rest of it. And then I'll start working at eight o'clock and then I might work for another two hours. So I think it's about managing that ebb and flow and just being really flexible with how things are going and being conscious of the fact that, you know, you might have a really busy period. So you might have to kind of, you know, things might stretch a bit and things might feel a bit more overwhelming for a short period of time. Like, as I said, I've just been through my book launch and the last three weeks have been a complete and utter whirlwind. But now (laughs) I've kind of scheduled downtime in there. So my days, are my work days are shorter. They're starting later. They're finishing earlier. I'm being conscious of being able to build some rest time back in there so that I can, you know, kind of recuperate from from all of that. So I think it's just being really conscious is a big thing for me. That sounds like you've worked out a solution for yourself. Have you ever actually struggled in this area? Because I speak to so many people who are struggling with boundaries, uh, finding their days bleeding into each other. 
not really having weekend and then think you're giving yourself a weekend on the Monday, but then no, you're actually going back and doing a little bit of work. So um, everything is still in a bit of a disarray and still, you know, you, you still try to find yourself juggling the balls and not feeling like you're doing a very good job at it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm human like everyone else and I get to that point. And I think there's a bit of a process for recalibrating when you hit that point. And, you know, we all hit that point of overwhelm. And I actually wrote, uh, I've got a blog article on that one actually called, you know, five steps to dissolving the chaos. And I can't remember all five steps, but one of them is, you know, getting back into nature reducing that cortisol because when we're in that fight or flight mode it's really difficult for us to actually regulate and come up with any kind of logical sense because we're constantly in this jittery kind of state that we can't think and everything's just going to be too hard so disconnecting from the environment and putting yourself in that natural environment is one of those big things that I find really helpful doing a massive brain dump and getting everything that is swirling around in your head out onto paper and then categorizing it going okay what do I absolutely have to do what can I delegate and what can I just get rid of? Like what is not important that has just been kind of hanging around there that doesn't need to be done? And then that stuff that does need to get done, let's break it down and let's build out some priorities here and then put some realistic timeframes around it to actually work out how I can manage this and where do I need to get help from? You know, is there someone that I can give this to or bring someone else into the business or into my personal life to help me outsource this stuff to make it more manageable? So they're just two of the five steps. Uh, I'll give you the link to the the blog post and you can add that (laughs) into the show notes if you like. Yes, I will do. Because I think there are ways that we can start to mitigate that. And I go back and I use that five steps to kind of help reorientate me when everything's getting like it's feeling like it's completely out of control. That is so interesting. I'm going to have to try and figure out ways to, um, well, first I have to finish your book, but I'm going to have to find ways to kind of distill what all of that means for my own personal workspace as well at home. It's on one level to figure this out for a shared workplace where you've got bosses and employees and all of that. But it's another thing as well, because some members are working from home, that we organize our own little workspace so that it is set up to be as optimal as possible for our productivity and happiness at home. I think you need to do a companion book, Melissa. You know, everything you've written about, but for people who are almost 24-7 remote, I think there's a lot of us out there. How can people connect with you if they wanted to find out more? Would that be your website? Yes, head over to melissamarsden.com.au and uh, there is actually a mini course there on how to set your home up to optimize your work life from home. So it's kind of already there for you. Um, And it, it takes a lot of the same principles that I share in what we do from a commercial workplace perspective and how to then use your home to optimize that work life environment as well. So that one's already there for you. Jackpot. Thank you so much. I'll put all those links in our show notes. So yeah, do go and check them out. But thank you so much for your time. I've loved just chat with you and just finding out so much more about what I didn't know about the workplace environment and even in my own little uh, space and how we can all achieve work-life balance, not just for ourselves, but for our team, our whole company as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been lovely chatting with you, Adeline. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. Do check out the show notes where I've put links to Melissa's new book and resources she mentioned, as well as ways you can reach Melissa directly or find out more about her work. Also, if you found value in today's show, please click the follow button if you'd like to be notified when a new episode drops. By the way, have you ever considered launching a podcast with a strategy to land in Apple's top 200 charts in the first week? If so, feel free to send me an email 
at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll explore how we can make that happen. Catch you next week for another great interview I can't wait to share with you to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.